0: You may be seated. I'm going to pray. Father God, thank you so much for your word. Thank you that it is living and active, that it is God-breathed, that you are the source, that it is divine in its authorship, <laughs> that it is necessary for our salvation, that it is clear enough for a young child to understand the good news of the gospel. That it is sufficient to handle our problems and our sin and how to live a life honorable to you and pleasing to you. That it is authoritative. It is the supreme authority of our life by which we submit all things to. That it is inerrant, wholly trustworthy infallible, that it will not fail in its word and in its promises. Thank you, Jesus, for your word. You are the word incarnate, and we want to see you and behold you this morning so that we may be transformed from one degree of glory to the next. In Jesus' name, amen. And it really is a privilege to preach. When Matt called me, Um, asking me to do it, I was a little overwhelmed, but I'm like, how can I deny this opportunity? I just said, on one condition, I need carpet in the church. (laughs) And uh, he really wanted red carpet, but I said, no, gray will just be fine. Don't roll out the red carpet for me, please. Um, No, it is, um, you know, in my new role, I'm not preaching as much, I'm teaching a lot. And I tell my class that, I'm really at heart a preacher, I love to preach and I wanna do it for the rest of my life, so how can I say no? And whenever I'm asked to preach, oftentimes my mind immediately starts perusing biblical texts and sermons that I've done, and Matt was like, just do one that you've already done, and I'm like, I can't do that, I'm going through all the sermons, the hundreds of sermons that I've been able and privileged to preach, and I'm like, I can't think of one. And usually this process can be pretty, Grueling, that is until God prompts my heart to stop and to consider who I will be preaching to. And it's not just this church, it's any church. And how on every Sunday, brokenness fills every church. And so instead of what cool sermon or cool uh, or, or obscure Old Testament text that I want to preach on to point to Christ, or instead, I began thinking about those whose marriages are on the rocks. Those who are suffering with eating disorders, who are in ongoing secret sin, yet on Instagram, social media, you would think that their lives are great and perfect, but we all know they're not. I think of the anxious and the abused and the traumatized, many of which fill this room think of sinners, I think of the self-righteous who come to criticize, who come to compare the Christians that are wayward, or maybe the Christians that are weary, I start to think about, or those that are spiritually lazy, or maybe even lost. I don't know where you're at today, I don't know your circumstances, but I do know that each and every one of you like me has a need. And there's only one answer for both sinners and saints, non-believers, those searching or those lost and those who are weary, just trying, that are just limping to heaven. (laughs) Join the club. We're all limping together. We're crawling. So what is the answer? What is the thing that both of these parties need this morning? the joyful Christian or the sorrowful one. Give me the gospel, give me Christ. It's so, it goes against everything that's default in us. We wanna hear law, tell me what to do. But what we need is to be reminded of who it is we have come to gather to worship and what has been done for us. When Moses went into the tabernacle, right, and was filled with the glory of God, and he beheld the glory of God, he was transformed. His face glowed, right? We just learned this in Exodus. But what's amazing about the new covenant and, and the gospel now is that Paul in 1 Corinthians, or 2 Corinthians 3, calls it a ministry of righteousness that it is the gospel of Jesus Christ, that beholding Christ Jesus is the very thing that transforms our life. You wanna you want grow spiritually, believer? You need to behold Christ Jesus. You need to behold the glory of God. And what is the glory of God? We behold the glory of God, 2 Corinthians 4, in the face of Christ. O oh soul, are you weary and troubled? No light in the darkness I see. There's light for a look at the Savior and life more abundant and free. So that is why I'm taking you to Mark chapter five. I just want to look at an encounter with Jesus Christ. And essentially, you can boil down my sermon into two sections, the woman and Christ, okay? And the book of Mark, just to give you some background, is divided into two sections, chapter 1 through chapter 8, verse 30, where Peter's great confession of who do people say that I am. The whole book of Mark was written to answer the question, who is Jesus? I've been teaching at the Rockford Rescue Mission about two times a month to those that do not know Jesus at all. And I've been just walking through the book of Mark, just, just asking the question, who is Jesus? Because he's either, he's either a liar, he's either a lunatic, or he's Lord. There's only three options, thanks to C.S. Lewis. He came up with that. And, and so the book of Mark is asking that question, who is Jesus? And we see right in the middle of the book, Peter say, you are the Christ, and so the first half of Mark is about Jesus' ministry in Galilee. He's, he's in Galilee doing his ministry, declaring, uh, showing who he is. And then chapters uh, 831 to the rest of the book of Mark is he's on the way to Jerusalem. And it ends, the section really ends with the climax of a centurion, a, a Gentile saying, truly this is the son of the living God. And so that's the book of Mark for you. And that's the context. Of the whole entire book, but the immediate context of our passage is this. In chapter 4, verse 35 through 41, we learn that Jesus just calmed the storm. And in calming the storm, the disciples are trembling in fear. They're asking, Who is this man? And so they they tremble. Right after Jesus calms the storm, he then goes to the Decapolis, where he goes and he heals a man who is indwelt by a legion that is a thousand demons. The worst case of demonic oppression in the whole entire Bible, yet Jesus in a word cast them all out. And what we see right in verse six is that when Jesus comes on the scene, it says, when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him crying out with a loud voice, what have you to do with me, Jesus, the son of the most high God? And so we see in the presence of Jesus, there is a response of fear. And then we get into verses, or verses 21 through 43. And we're introduced to our text. And right away, what happens? We see a ruler come running to Jesus. His name is Jairus. And he falls at the feet of Jesus. So you have this pattern going on of Jesus comes, someone comes running and falls, and we see the father's love, Jarius. He's, he's so concerned for his daughter, and so just mark that mentally, the father's love for his daughter, and his daughter was 12 years old, she had been 12 years living, we learn that in verse 42 of Mark chapter 5, Jairus' daughter was 12 years old, only 12, but now she's at her end. And so Jesus goes with him, He implores him, saying, "My little daughter's at the point of death, come lay your hands, lay your hands on her so that she may be made well." The word "well" means "sozo" in the Greek. It means "saved, delivered, rescued, and that she would live." And he went with him. So Jesus is walking with him, and here we're introduced to our subject for the very first time. And there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years, who had suffered much under many physicians and had spent all that she had and was no better, but only grew worse. So first in the passage, we come across the woman and and point number one is the woman's great need. It's not just a woman that we come across, but it's a woman with a great need, verses 24 through 29. And this need of hers is seen in her condition, her condition. And there's six things about her condition that we need to see. The first is that she is a diseased woman. She, she calls her disease, in verse 30, an affliction. The word disease means affliction or whip or scourge or flogging. So she views her disease as, as if it is master over her, whipping flogging her. It is an affliction. That's what she's had for 12 years and this disease was one of constant menstrual blood flow. This could be identified today as uterine fibroids. It's a curable condition today. It's tumors within the uterus which causes a constant pain and flow of blood. Like I said, it is curable today, but then it was not. This woman would have been extremely anemic. She would have been pale in her face. She would have been fatigued 12 years of this. Afflicted constantly. But what was even worse was that her disease left her spiritually unclean. So she was not only a, 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 a diseased woman, but she was a defiled woman. She was a defiled woman, second aspect of her condition. And we know this because of the nature of it, which was that she had a discharge of blood, and blood in the ancient Jewish culture meant life, but it also meant death. She was, her spiritual status was one of defilement, of uncleanness. And and Jewish ceremonial law was clear. So if you have your Bibles, go to Leviticus 15. You have to understand the context to, to know the severity of this woman's case. Leviticus chapter 15 Leviticus 15, 25 through 31 says, if a woman has a j- discharge of blood for many days, not at the time of her menstrual impurity, or if she has a discharge beyond the time of her impurity, notice the words impurity and uncleanness here, all the days of the discharge shall be cont- shall continue in uncleanness. As in the days of her impurity, she shall be unclean. Every bed on which she lies, all the days of her discharge shall be to her as the bed of her impurity. And everything on which she sits shall be unclean, as if the uncleanness of her menstrual impurity. And whoever touches these things shall be unclean and shall wash his clothes and bathe himself in water and be unclean until the evening. But if she is cleansed of her discharge, she shall "'Count herself seven days, "'and after that she shall be clean. "'And on the eighth day she shall take two turtle doves "'or two pigeons and bring them to a priest.'" This is key. "'To the entrance of the tent of meeting,' tabernacle. "'And the priest shall use one for a sin offering "'and the other for a burnt offering. "'And the priest shall make atonement for her.'" before the Lord for her unclean discharge. Thus, you, this is the whole point. Why, why these obscure laws? Thus, you shall keep the people of Israel separate from their uncleanliness. Or it's all about separation, which is what holiness is, being set apart. Lest they die in their uncleanness by defiling my tabernacle that is in their midst. Okay, we go back to Mark. So, she is spiritually defiled. Everything that she was and did was characterized by uncleanness. Imagine the psychological effects of that. She slept in her impurity, she sat in her impurity. Everything she touched became impure. Not only was she plagued, which is what the word disease means in our text, a plague, but she, to those around her, was a plague. And she would be that until a priest declared her clean. But until then, not only was she diseased and deviled, she was disqualified. She was a disqualified woman. This is social disqualification cut off from the synagogue, and the synagogue was the religious hub and social hub of the town. She would not be able to enter with her spiritual status and with her disease. She would not be able to go to any festivities. She would not be able to take part in any weddings. She would not even be allowed to go and buy from a merchant because if she, if she uh, uses money and gives that to the merchant, and then his whole entire fruit stand or whatever becomes unclean. She can't even go into the the social hub of the town. She is disqualified from that. She is actually, according to Jewish law in Leviticus 20, I believe, she's disqualified from marriage. So her spiritual status is that of uncleanliness and her social status was that of a leper. Therefore, she's not only diseased, defiled, disqualified, but also discarded, discarded. Because of her condition, she was despised, rejected, avoided, and forgotten about. In the text, we see this in a comparison here. So in verses 21 through 24, we have a character that's named by his first name. That is Jairus. And we know that that means that he is a man of status. He was a ruler of the synagogue. And so Mark gives us his name. But when it comes to the woman, we don't get a name. We just get a woman. What does that show? It shows that she's a discarded woman, that she isn't even known. No one knows about her, no name, no occupation, no family, no husband. Jarius is revered, he's respected, he's honored. But due to her condition, not necessarily her sex, I'm not making this a feministic thing here, she is discarded, cut off, separated, exiled, banished key words here. Therefore, you can now understand this woman's desperation. Number five, she's diseased, defiled, disqualified, discarded, and she's a desperate woman. For 12 years in our text, it says for 12 years, she had suffered much under many physicians. She's looking for someone to heal her. She's looking for her disease to be cured. She's trying everything, spending her money on everything in order to find this cure. But what happened? She became even more poor and only grew worse. Desperate for a cure, not only physically, but in her mind, spiritually. Where do you get that from the text here? Because she says in verse 28, if I touch even his garments, I will be made well. That word well is sozo in the Greek. It means to be spiritually delivered. It means to be saved. And it's, she's not just talking physical saving. She's talking spiritually. She recognized that her need was not just a physical part, uh, problem, but a spiritual one as well. Body and soul needed to be made well, otherwise she is damned according to her status. For 12 years she sought relief and found none. How many times do you think she was maybe exploited as well? It only grew worse, leaving her number six. She's a despairing woman. Leaves her into despair. 12 years of death. 12 years of hope fading. 12 years of letdowns. 12 years of sleepless nights. 12 years of never knowing the affection of a loved one. Imagine that. 12 years of scorn. 12 years of loneliness. Imagine that. This was the result of her condition. So, what's the point? What does this have to do with us? Friends, the point is to show you a physical representation of the spiritual condition of those who live outside and apart from Christ Jesus. This Woman's physical condition is a perfect illustration to you of the nature and misery of sin. It is, and man lost in sin. This is man apart from Christ. And she is a, she is a reminder to you, Christian, of what you were saved from <laughs> and why you are ultimately here, which is why you need to hear this and, and consider this. What were we saved from? (laughs) We were saved from the incurable disease called sin, that great plague and curse and affliction, that great whip, that Jesus said if you practice sin, you are enslaved to sin, John 8, 34. Romans 3, 23, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. For just as she called her condition one of a whip or flogging, so it is with all those who practice sin. We're all born chained to Adam. There's only two types of people here this morning, those who are in Adam, chained to Adam, and those who are chained to Christ. The incurable disease called sin that defiles us, right? For, for just, and this is key when it comes to the nature of sin, for just as the one, what was the nature of this woman's condition? For just as her disease came from within and flowed out of her, which is what defiled her, So it is with sin. Turn the page in your Bible to Mark chapter six or seven. Look what Jesus says about sin in Mark seven, verse 20. He's talking to the Pharisees. They think that what's outside of the body, food is what defiles them. Their environment is what defiles them. The system outside uh, uh, of yourself is what defiles you. But what does Jesus say really defiles you? Verse 20, and he said, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man. The word heart there is means it's the core of who you are. It's your affections, your will, your thoughts, everything of who you are. From within, out of the heart comes evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these things come from within, and they defile a person. We do not believe what Rousseau believed in the noble savage, that the problem with mankind today is their environment, that man is born naturally good, and what defiles them, what corrupts them, is the system, is institutions and people around them. No, According to Jesus in the Bible, what defiles each and every one of us is our own sinful, unclean heart. In fact, it's not only our sin, but Isaiah 64:6 6 say that according to, to God's perspective, even our good works are to Him a polluted garment, which in the Hebrew is a menstrual garment. Bloody rags are good works to God, tainted with sin. We are defiled from top to bottom. So parents, the thought that I could just remove my life and my family and my kids from a harsh environment, that that will keep them safe. You're misdiagnosing your kids. It's their heart. It's the heart of man that you should be concerned about. Now, it's, it's good. That's fine. I'm for your decisions. But put a premium on the heart. That is where sin comes from. We're diseased. We're defiled. But sin, even worse, it disqualifies us from entering the presence of God. We know this because Jesus says to the lawyer in Luke chapter 10, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test in verse 25 saying, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, what is written in the law? And the man says, you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and you must love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus says, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. In other words, the condition by which you will receive salvation is on the grounds of your perfect works, according to Jesus. He doesn't correct the lawyer. He just says you have to obey the law perfectly, perpetually, and personally. But as we know, we're sinners. We're disqualified, thus, discarded. Because of sin, we are exiled, banished, and separated from the very presence of God. For God is a holy God who dwells in an unapproachable light where sin is not to be found. In fact, sin is banished. What happened to Adam when he broke God's law in the garden? What happened to Adam and Eve? Were they able to stay in their perfect condition, in the perfect uh, presence of God in the temple of Eden? No, they were banished. And when Israel broke the covenant by going after foreign gods in their promised land, which was a type of Eden, a type of temple, what happened? God banished them exiled them, cast out into outer darkness, Romans 6.23, that the wages of sin is death. Resulting in judgment. There's no earthly remedy for this condition. And sin is so deceiving because it will deceive you from seeing the true nature and hopelessness of your condition. And yet... For many of you, there still remains a longing in every human heart for change, even in our secular culture. Everyone's longing for change, for redemption. They know that something is wrong, and so sin leaves us desperate for a remedy. Except just like the woman, we run to tons of different earthly physicians to find a cure for our anxiety, our lust, our pride, our idolatry. Seeking help but never finding it and always leaving us in a worse condition. You know, as I'm writing this, I'm thinking about the young men and women today, young teenage men, boys and girls, in the trans community. And when I see what's going on, I am, I I revolt naturally. But after thinking about it, I, I begin to break for these people because they're so broken and they're so desperate for affirmation. Struggling with who they are biologically only to be told the lie that maybe perhaps they were meant to be the opposite gender and to receive gender-affirming care, and that will solve all their problems. That is until the doctor carves them up and takes all of their money and leaves them worse. And it's sad I know we get angry, but we need to pray and let our hearts be broken and, and then not just compare ourselves saying, look how bad they are, but we do the same thing because in the state of depra- de- desperation, we seek help from all, all the time from the wrong sources. Maybe it's the, the physician of alcohol or, or the physician of drugs or, or entertainment, just to numb the pain. Just to distract us from what's going on. Or or the physician of affirmation in another person that's not your spouse. Thinking that it's going to help you and heal you, but it will only make things worse and it will leave you poor. From sex, to drugs, to entertainment, to materialism, to fitness, to even our good works, these are all physicians that will only leave us worse, in a worse state if we're running to them, and thus leaves us in despair. No hope, life in sin, indulging in it, living apart from Christ. It leads to despair or pride. You might be prideful in your sin, but one day you will face despair for all of eternity. Friends, the woman's great need was not that she needed physical healing, it was that she needed to be saved from the power and effects of sin. And this is the great need of all of ours as well. Sin is the problem. (laughs) We have to understand that. And this is the bad news. But it's the most important thing for you to grasp, otherwise you will remain like the crowd. Close to Jesus, maybe even touching Jesus, yet so far from him. See, the crowd was unaware of their need, and yet it was the woman's condition and the awareness of it that flew her to action when she hears, verse 27, the report. She hears good news, the report of Jesus. And this report is not that he's just in town, but it was a report of who he was, that perhaps he was the promised Messiah and that he has been healing people. He's been forgiving sin. We've already seen that in Mark chapter two. And so she's like, I must go to him. I must run. And here we have a great application, friends. Faith comes by hearing. Faith comes by hearing the good news. She has found a physician that she could put her confidence in. And she's saying, as she's running to him, she's saying, and if I touch even his garments, I will be saved. And in the Greek, that phrase is in the imperfect tense, which means she was repeating it over and over. She's, so she's working her way through the crowd saying, I I must get to Jesus. I must touch his garments. I will be saved. I will be made well. I must touch even his garments. I will be saved. That she's working through the crowd. I love that. So there's hundreds of people around Jesus rubbing shoulders around him. We know that because Peter cries out, you see the crowd pressing around you and yet you say, who touched me? There's tons of people touching Jesus but there's only one. Who clings to Christ by faith. So she enters the crowd, making every single person she touched unclean. See the risk that she's taking here. She's risking death. For her crimes. She would be condemned and stoned for such a thing as this. And yet she does not care. She must get to Jesus. I love that. Her eyes are set on him. She is beholding him. She must get to him. (laughs) She comes in modesty. She comes hidden behind him. She doesn't want to make a scene. (laughs) She comes up behind him. And touches his garments. Verse 29 And what happens? Immediately, the flow of blood dried up and she felt in her body that she was healed of her plague, of her affliction. The whip had stopped. The disease, over. She was set free by a touch. (laughs) But not just any touch. Like I said, for hundreds of people were crowded around Jesus. Hundreds of people touched him, yet it was only one who was saved. Why? Because it was only one who realized who Jesus really was. To the crowd, he was a celebrity. To the woman, a savior. To the crowd, he was a political ruler. To the woman, she was the, he was the king of kings. To the crowd, he was just a rabbi. To the woman, he was lord. Lord. She clung to him by faith. And we know that because Jesus said, it is your faith. And it wasn't the quality or the strength of faith that saved her. It was Jesus, the object of her faith that saved her. That's important. It's not the quality of faith. It's not the strength of the grasp upon Jesus that saves. It's the object of your faith that saves. That's good news for you who are weak in faith that even the smallest amount of faith is able to bring you all the way into the arms of Jesus. She had faith in who Jesus was, and that made all the difference. I love what J.C. Ryle says about this point. He says, many follow Jesus but derive no benefit. They, They follow out of curiosity Maybe under, but she followed out of a deep sense of her need and the Savior's power to relieve her. And there, there she received a mighty blessing. He goes on, he says, we see the same thing going on occasionally in the church of Christ today. Multitudes go to our places of worship and fill our pews. Hundreds come up to the Lord's table. But all of these worshipers, not few, really obtain anything from Christ Fashion, custom, form, habit, the love of excitement or itching ears are true motives of the vast majority. There are but few here and there who touch Christ by faith and go home in peace. It's a warning. Why is this the case of so many today that they love to follow Jesus, but they don't derive any benefit from him? Because they fail to see who Jesus is. And so who is Jesus? To the crowd, he was a political rescuer, but to the woman, Jesus was the woman's great physician. Point number two. I just want to focus on Jesus here. Three things we learn about Jesus' identity from the text, verses 30 on. Let's finish it. It says, "And Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, it's the only time in the text where, in the scriptures, where that kind of phrase is used. Don't necessarily know what that means, but he was aware that he healed someone." Immediately, he stops. He turns to the crowd and said, who touched my garment? <laughs> and the disciples, and we know from Luke, it's Peter, said to him, you see the crowd pressing around you, and yet you say, who touched me? And he looked around to see. And in the Greek, that word is he looked intently. He kept looking. He had to find this woman. And we know that Jesus is the son of God. He, we know that he knew who touched him. But he's looking to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing, who had, uh, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear. And trembling fell down. You see that? The demoniac, Jairus, now this woman, fell down before him and told him, and from the Gospel of Luke, told the whole crowd the truth. And Jesus turned to her, looked her in the eyes, said, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. Three things about Christ here that make all the difference. First, is Jesus' power to heal and save is unmatched. His power to save is unmatched. Out of all the earthly physicians, sorcerers, there is none but Jesus that has the power to save. Why? Because as Mark has been trying to show us in this context, is that Jesus is the only eternal God, the ruler and sustainer and authoritative one over all things. He's trying to show us that right before this text in Mark 4, 35 through 41, Jesus, we see Jesus' power and authority over nature. Truly, this is the Son of God. Then right after that, we see Jesus' power and authority over the worst case of demonic oppression. Surely, this is the Son of the living God. And right after this, we see Jesus' power over disease and death itself, raising the 12 year old daughter of Jairus to life right after this passage, foreshadowing his ultimate victory over death, which is his own resurrection. He is the true, authoritative, all powerful King of Kings and Lord of Lords. He is the great physician. And so we see that about Jesus, that he has the power. I love it, it says, immediately. Immediately, her, her disease of 12 years is gone. The plague cured in an instant, which then leads to the second identity marker of Jesus. So we see that he is the eternal son of God in his power. But then, and my favorite, if I could have favorites, is the passion of Jesus. And when I mean passion, I mean love of Jesus. What grips me about this story, this true account, is just how kind and sweet Jesus is to this broken woman. For if he is this kind to to someone this defiled among the people, I know he will be kind to me and receive me. That's what I think about. He's so receptive because if he would be to uphold the law, which is why I think this woman is coming down trembling in fear because she know that she just made hundreds of people unclean, including Jesus himself, according to the Jewish standards. And Jesus had every right to come down upon this woman according to the law, but instead he's so kind to her. He wants to acknowledge her. He stops. He stops. This woman has never been acknowledged in her life. And yet he acknowledges her. He has to look at her. He has to affirm her. He has to assure her. It's so sweet and so kind his love. And here's the thing, it's not that Jesus is the loving person of the Trinity and the Father is not. He is the perfect display of the Father's love and affection towards his children. So what we're seeing in action is the Father's love towards us. It's amazing. It's it's how can it be? <laughs> he he stops and he stoops. To her level. He looks intently for her. And this is the only place in all the gospels that he calls a woman daughter. Why? It has to be to assure her to make sure that she knows that she is accepted and forgiven, that she's no longer a child of wrath, but a child of God. And I believe that she comes trembling and falls down before Jesus because she for sure now knows that, that for sure that he is the son of God. He is who people are saying he is. So she falls down in awe. And Jesus welcomes her. But secondly, even deeper than his kindness in the moment is his kindness towards her in the future. Because we have to ask the question, how does Jesus heal her? On what grounds can Jesus declare someone forgiven and spiritually clean? Because according to the law, she would have had to go to a priest who would have declared her clean and made atonement for her, right? But Jesus does not command her to do that. So we have to ask the question, why? On what grounds does Jesus have the authority to do that? On the grounds of the fact that he, little did she know, is her priest is her great high priest right on what grounds is she healed on the grounds of the great high priest who enters into the holy of holies once and for all for sin to be the sacrifice for her <laughs> and so Jesus can declare her king because she he is the eschatological high priest he is the ultimate priest he is the great intercessor. He's the great mediator between God and man. He is everything the tabernacle pointed to. I love what Hebrews says that He is a priest who is able to sympathize with our weaknesses and who, in every respect, was tempted as we were, yet without sin. And then in Hebrews chapter 7, I have to go here too, says this about our great high priest. Jesus is the priest. He is the tabernacle. He is the sacrifice. And so on what grounds? On the grounds of Jesus' own life, death, resurrection, and ascension, can he declare someone spiritually free, delivered, saved, healed, forgiven? That's the ground by which you can be made clean this morning. It's the grounds by which you were saved. And I love the irony here, because this woman was declared unclean on the grounds of her own blood which flowed out of her, yet she is declared clean on the grounds of Christ's blood covering her. Amazing. What good news (laughs) that there is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins and sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. Praise be to God that Jesus bore the plague so that she can be set free. He underwent the whip and the flogging so that she could be set free, so that you could be set free. He underwent the misery of, of, of disease called sin. He was discarded. He was despised. He bore the wrath of God so that you and I could hear the words, go in peace. But only those who come to him by faith. It's one thing to hear a report about Jesus, but you must go. I'm giving you that report. You must go to him by faith. And so here we see the passion of Christ for sinners. And it's not the strength of faith that saves, no, it's the passion of Christ that saves. It's him who saves. It's his love for us, not our love for him. We love because he first loved us. Daughter, daughter, your faith has made you well, go in peace. The last thing we see about Jesus is we see the promise of Jesus. We see the power, the the passion, the promise. How do you know you aren't just a part of the crowd this morning? How do you know you, you are really a son or daughter of Christ? How can you be sure that you will hear the words or have heard the words, daughter, son, you are mine? How do you know that you know It's not in your performance. Jesus didn't say, because you came quickly, that's why you're saved. It's not in your good works. It's not in what you do for God. That's not the grounds of your assurance. It's not even in your faith or the quality of your faith. Faith is the rope that attaches us to the object. It's all about the object of our faith. It's by beholding Christ and taking him at his word when he says this. How can you be sure? How can you hear the words of assurance this morning from Christ Jesus himself? Through his word. He is the word. He says, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. He says, For I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. All that the Father gives to me will come to me and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. And Jesus says, for whoever looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life and I will raise him up on the last day. I will, I will, I will by no means cast you out. Friends, those who are far from Christ Do not harden your hearts. You've heard the report of Jesus. Will you come to him and cling to him by faith? He will take you as you are. He will welcome you with arms of love. Turn from your earthly physicians and come to the great physician of your soul. Come to the one who can heal. And believer, never leave the great physician. Stay at his feet. Look to him, behold him. Don't get tired of him. (laughs) You never outgrow your need of him. Let who Jesus is, his power, his passion, his promise fuel fuel you to live for him, to rejoice in him, to live in peace. Father God, thank you so much for your word. What love. Lord, I'm so thankful to be able to sing this song. Here is love vast as the ocean, loving kindness as the sea. For if my sin is the great lake, so Lord, your mercy and grace is the Pacific Ocean. It's far outseeding my sin. Lord, I pray that we would take our sins seriously, our condition seriously, that we would be reminded of what we were saved from, so that we may be filled with thanksgiving to live for you all the more, and that we'd never grow tired of looking to you, Jesus Christ, because in you we see the Father. We know that the work of the Holy Spirit is to help us see the Son, and so keep our eyes on Christ, the radiance of the glory of God. In Jesus' name, amen.